Welcome to the new RPS Pharmacine podcast, where we interview interesting people from the world of pharmacy and beyond. And we want to hear from you. Head to the RPS Twitter and hashtag RPS Pharmacine to have your say on who we should invite to the show and what you would like to ask our guests. Now, please welcome your hosts. My name is Gina Martini and I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. And today we have another Pharmacine podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by two guests. We have Sunny Shah, who is the chair of the Industrial Pharmacist Advisory Group of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and our special guest, Dr. Natalie Moll, who is Director General of the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, otherwise known as FPA. Hello, everybody. Hello, Sunny. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me to this wonderful podcast. And Natalie, how are you today? Well, lovely to be here. Thank you, Gina. I'm fine. Thank you. Natalie, we're a membership body of pharmacists and pharmaceutical scientists. Could you tell our members about your career pathway to date and obviously your role at FPF, please? Yeah, with pleasure. Indeed, my name is Natalie Moll and I'm originally a scientist. I studied biotech and biochemistry at St. Andrews University many, many moons ago with the aspiration of, of remaining a scientist, but realizing perhaps my limitations in terms of successful research I decided I would uh, work on improving the environment for scientists to succeed in the areas of biotech. So I worked uh, for the biotechnology industry for about 21 years in associations at European and national level, as well as uh, in companies. And then about four and a half years ago, I joined FPA as the director general. My main motivation in life is really to channel scientific knowledge and scientific capacities to solve some of the biggest problems that face uh, the human race, whether it's hunger or health or sustainability. And I'm really delighted to be able to have channeled, let's say, the, the expertise that I have ever since I started working 26 years ago. We've also had this pandemic, which I'm sure we're going to touch upon later on in this interview. But many of our listeners may not know about the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. What does FBA actually do? How does it work? FDA represents the research-based pharmaceutical industry in Europe. Uh, so we represent the world-leading pharmaceutical companies, uh, the very large ones, as well as the smaller ones, and also a number of SMEs. And we also represent 36 national pharmaceutical industry associations around Europe. Um, we work in collaboration with many different stakeholders to really sh- uh, create and shape an environment that is attractive for innovation and supports innovation, as well as, of course, being mindful of the economic contribution that our industry gives to Europe and beyond. And we have the we share the ambition with the European Union at the moment to become a world leader in health innovation. Obviously, we have the APPI in the UK. And how does FPN and API uh, interact? Uh, certainly, obviously, now in, in recent years, it probably has changed a little bit, or, or has it changed? Well, actually, it's got really even stronger during all the discussions around Brexit and, and the negotiations to, to finalise frameworks. I mean, the UK has an incredibly vibrant research ecosystem mm-hmm. and research-based industry, and ABPI is a very important member association of FPA. We've worked together very hard, as I mentioned, over the last years to shape the final outcome for our industry. And we continue to do so as we try to understand and anticipate the impact on our industry of that changing relationship between the UK and the EU. 
greater. There's been greater cohesion, which is actually really quite good. Actually, for me, being a pharmaceutical scientist, that really fills me with a lot of confidence and hope, actually. So that's great news. Sonny, I'll hand over to you for the next question. I just wanted to pick up on the pandemic aspect. COVID-19 has forced the pharma research institutes and regulators to think how they operated. What's actually changed and what lessons can we learn from this? I think the biggest lesson that we've all learned from this pandemic is the power of collaboration um, in general, but especially for our industry response to the pandemic. We realized how collaborating between ourselves with research centers, with regulators, really allowed us to set up multiple research initiatives in record time and really starting up vaccine manufacturing to find solutions as quickly as possible. It really all started at the beginning. Well, at least what what we, the the main world, knew at the beginning, which was the 30th of January 2020, when the WHO declared that the world was facing a public health emergency of international concern. And there were no treatments that were licensed to treat the patients, but there were also no vaccines to protect citizens. Um, And we really had to get together very quickly to be able to face the pandemic and find those treatments and work on the vaccines. The first thing, though, that we faced as countries started closing down their borders was making sure we could ensure an uninterrupted supply of medicines masks, gloves, etc. But for my industry, it was, of course, mainly medicines. And really, that required and continues to require a very global response. It meant that our members had to kickstart their pandemic preparedness plans already at the end of 2019, to make sure that in some cases, they were producing up to 800% the amount of the medicines that they needed to produce. And also that has led to the capacity of members to be flexible during this lockdown situation and ensure the continued supply of medicines. But also this collaborative spirit continued also during the need to scale up vaccine production, where now we have more than 300 production supply deals around the world to ensure that we can produce up to 11 billion doses. So I think one was collaboration. The other one was sound yet flexible regulatory frameworks, and not only to assess the treatments that, first of all, were being given to patients, but of course now also the vaccines, and also preserving ongoing research and clinical trials. That was a very big impact that the pandemic has had on many thousands of patients across the EU that take part in over 4,000 clinical trials for new medicines. Um, Suddenly, because of the changed conditions due to the pandemic, we had to work very closely with the European medicines agencies to find innovative ways together to support the continuity of clinical trials, critical to trials participants and future advances. So that was also a big challenge that we overcame. And really, the last thing we learned is that regulatory harmonization, flexible labeling requirements, transparency, cooperation on demand data and support of global supply chains are really the recipes to ensure that patients can get the medicines they need, whether it's in a pandemic or or beyond. The intensity of the emergency, if you like, had the effect of bringing to the surface some best practices that we hope we can really continue to carry on even after the pandemic is over. Thank you for that. I think on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, Natalie, We would just like to thank all those companies that worked really hard to keep the supply chains open. We had Richard Sainer, who's the CEO of Sandos, um, on this podcast nine, ten months ago. 
And it was just fascinating to hear how hard all the manufacturers have been to try and make sure that critical medicines, essential medicines, and even these repurposed medicines were available for patients, for clinical trials. It was a huge, huge effort. Every now and then we should thank people. And this is my opportunity to thank those players, uh, those guys working in the industry who've made those supply chains uh, available and open throughout this terrible time that we were facing during the pandemic. I'd like to grieve you as well about the collaboration effort, you know, the regulators working in an agile world, flexible way, turning around clinical trials in record time. Just an unbelievable achievement and one that we should continue to acknowledge. And one thing that struck me, Natalie, I'm also vaccinating people myself, how grateful people are to getting a vaccine how grateful they are to the industry, how grateful they are to the regulators for making this possible. And I think that's just quite advocacy for the profession of pharmaceutical sciences and for the industry. Thank you very much. It's really great to hear. And uh, I agree with you. I am in awe of what the industry and the other partners managed to achieve in such dire conditions. Also, the way we were working from home. I mean, everything was, there was a revolution in everything and still we came out uh, on top despite the many, many losses that we had to face. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's having a massive impact. And working from home has made a big impact on my knees. My my knees are going. I'm getting too old for all this. (laughs) (laughs) But we've talked about the pandemic right now. We had Professor Dame Sally Davies as a guest a couple of weeks ago. Natalie, as you know, she's a special envoy for AMR. And she really has, she's really concerned about AMR, obviously. And obviously concerned about the winter that's coming into into Europe and uh, obviously we've got flu, we've got the COVID-19 and maybe antibiotic resistance may come back with a vengeance. Can you give some insight from an FDA's point of view, how industry is tackling AMI issue from stewardship to bring in novel antimicrobials to the market? It's a really good point. I'm so glad that you've included this in this podcast, but also in others, because that was the silent pandemic, right? It was already there before COVID-19 and it's not going away. And it's one that we can predict, unlike COVID-19. So it would be absolutely unforgivable for all stakeholders to take the issue of AMR lightly and not to tackle it as quickly and as well as possible. So we are fully committed to tackling AMR. We've raised this issue very many times, and it's good to see it picked up in the pharmaceutical strategy of the European Commission. Um, In general, as an industry, of course, we support the One Health approach. FDA is a key member of the AMR Industry Alliance. It has over 100 innovative pharma companies, biotechs, generics, diagnostics, working together to find solutions. Um, Of course, you can't only find solutions. Solutions don't only lie in antibiotics, but also in stewardship an appropriate use, um, meeting environmental targets on manufacturing discharge and access is also integral to the industry alliance's approach of raising the bar across the life science sector. So it's a sort of from the beginning of a product to the end of the life of the product. It's being able to look after this whole process, how the product is developed, but also how it's used and then how it's disposed. It's important in AMR. We also uh, co-invested with the European Commission almost 1 billion euros on our Innovative Medicines Initiative that is a public-private partnership with the European Commission that we have uh, on a program called New Drugs for Bad Bugs with projects to understand the resistance and fill the pipelines with new candidates as well as progressing clinical trial development uh, of first-in-class products and new indications in areas of AMR unmet medical need, because there are many of those as well. And finally, as a global industry, we've launched uh, in July 2020 a 1 billion US dollar global AMR action fund 
as a bridge awaiting innovative pull-in centers that need to be put in place by different governments to support the late-stage clinical trials and enable a sustainable antibiotic pipeline because the difficulty, and we've seen a few biotechs fail, is that when you get to clinical trials, it's extremely expensive and complex to carry those through. So this AMR action fund of 1 billion is, is supposed to hopefully get us two to three new antibiotics on the market in the next um, 10 years. So that's really the objective. But of course, we can't really solve this problem on our own and it, and it can't be a sustainable solution. So as I mentioned, we really need some holistic solutions that involve all stakeholders, the public and the private ones. COVID-19 has shown that we can really implement new policies in a very effective way in a timely manner against global health threats. And this is the global health threat. So we've noticed that in the European Commission's Horizon Europe, they have a pilot on the development and procurement and responsible management of new antimicrobials. And we hope also that the new um, HERA could play an important role in this respect. So I know in the UK, there's a national subscription model pilot in place and, and Sweden as well. And these are really encouraging first steps, but we need that bold political action to give companies the confidence to start reinvesting in antimicrobial development. Uh, new instruments should not end up duplicating existing thing, incentives. So I know that in the US they're discussing the Pasteur Act. Uh, it's been re recently reintroduced, and if it passes, it could make a really important impact in addressing the market failure. And we need things like that at European level as well. So the last things I'm going to say is push funding is not sufficient. We really need those meaningful pull incentives because we can put as much money in research as we like, but we're not supposed to use antibiotics, right? They're supposed to be your last line of battle. And therefore, there is no real market for antibiotics. So you need to create pull incentives that uh, will make the case for companies to, to go back into this area. We need a, a pulling centre to support R&D and bespoke valuation of antimicrobial reimbursement reforms to ensure market sustainability as a sort of a joint approach. I think what many people don't understand, when you make an antibiotic in a factory, that's all you can make in that factory is an antibiotic because of the contamination issues. And so all that capital investment in a building that can't be used that often. So it, it's always good to get both sides of the discussion. And I totally agree with you, the collaboration, the various incentives. I'm very optimistic. I'm more optimistic now than ever I've been. And you are spot on. Absolutely correct. It's been the silent pandemic and it's kind of crept upon us. And so glad now that I think the future looks a lot brighter and I'm seeing a lot more discovery pipelines filling up with antibiotics. So that's, that's really good news. So looking to the future, Natalie, earlier this year, FPA commissioned and released its innovation pipeline report about the medicines in development. Can you inform our listeners about this report and the exciting medicinal products which are in development? Thanks, Sumi. As a scientist, that's an exciting question to answer. And I always like to remind everybody that the pharma industry had to tackle COVID on top. It's not that suddenly we all stopped doing what we were doing before and we turned to COVID treatments and vaccines and diagnostics. We continued to work on research despite having also to find solutions for COVID. So um, we published our pipeline review recently and it really shows that uh, we have uh, still a very innovative R&D pipeline covering a broad range of diseases and unmet medical needs. And uh, just in 2020, despite COVID, around 5,000 clinical trials sponsored by industry 
were started across therapy areas, including in areas such as oncology, infectious diseases, neurology, hematology, respiratory diseases. So it's really exciting. Um, about half of the pipeline is made of new substances. The other half is indication expansion. So that's also quite impressive. And we've also identified a number of high-impact breakthrough innovations in the pipelines that will completely change the treatment paradigm for patients and health systems, which is a challenge. It's a fantastic opportunity, but of course it means since there's a revolution in science, we need to also have a revolution in healthcare systems on how to accommodate that science and make the most of the savings and make sure we channel it and, and get the best outcomes for patients. To pick some areas, Alzheimer's and non-alcoholic fatty liver diseases, we're far away from cures, but we uh, really hopefully see the first meaningful treatments on the horizon, which would be a huge change for patients living with these diseases and, of course, for healthcare systems as well, um, having to tackle them. In other areas, we can start talking in terms of cures being possibility, which is wonderful and, uh, and what we all work towards. For example, rare genetic disorders where new gene therapies are in development. There are examples for hemophilia, where patients today have to undergo very burdensome intravenous therapies, as we know, every week, maybe multiple times a week, sometimes to get the protein that helps them. Whereas a gene therapy could repair the full T-gene and enable natural production of the protein in the body or for serious um, viral infections like hepatitis B and HIV. We're also seeing R&D development similar to what we previously achieved in curing hepatitis C. So really exciting for industry, but most of all for patients. But as I mentioned, it will pose uh, a challenge to health systems in terms of preparing for that innovation. If I think of Alzheimer's, what kind of infrastructure will you need as a health system to diagnose Alzheimer's patients at the right moment to make use of, of the treatments? And at the moment, not every country, not every healthcare system is adapted to that. So for this, I think we need to be better at horizon scanning and we need to have a better dialogue going back to collaboration between stakeholders to forecast what is coming and then to adapt healthcare services and delivery models and healthcare systems to, to be able to adopt this breakthrough innovation for the benefits of patients. So lots of change, lots of opportunities. And again, hopefully the learnings of COVID-19 have taught us that we can really, when we work together, we do a great job. We're much more effective and we can do unexpected things like addressing a pandemic. So I really think we should be able to manage the introduction of this incredibly exciting pipeline as well. Indeed, it certainly inspires optimism about the overall trajectory of the medical innovation. And let's not forget the mRNA technologies which have given us the first COVID-19 vaccines. And it could one day be used to treat things like the aggressive brain cancer. And you talked about the silent pandemic. It's interesting to sort of see the metabolic disorders also in the pipeline, like the non-alcohol related fatty acid liver disease, which is a silent pandemic. So there are lots and lots of diseases and lots of potential therapies that could be utilised in the future. So thank you, Natalie. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. And of course, who would have thought 18 months ago, two years ago, Pfizer would produce a vaccine and, and AstraZeneca in quick succession. So it just shows you the power of collaboration and your pipeline report is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, COVID, I suppose, is a distraction, but actually we can utilise the best practices that we did working as an industry to fast track these exciting medicines going forward. Yesterday, I read a report that perhaps there could be about 10,000 people in the UK may miss having a cancer diagnosis because of what happened with COVID. So 
we need to make sure that the silent pandemic going forwards, it doesn't head in the shape of cancers and Alzheimer's, what have you. So fingers crossed. So Natalie, it's been a fascinating conversation. I just want to look at future now. How do you see the role of pharmacy and the pharmacist evolve against this fascinating background of pharmaceutical innovation? I'm glad you asked because, of course, it's your audience, but uh, also because pharmacists and pharmacies play such a crucial role. Right? They're, they're very often the first and sometimes the only point of contact for patients to healthcare professionals when, when you don't go to a doctor, when your appointment is too late or when you think you don't need to. Those are the people that you speak to. Those are the places you go. And as the, as the new innovative medicines become ever more complex, we'll have more products combined with digital technologies, for example, or with other devices And it's really crucially important that pharmacists keep up to date with these innovations and are able to help patients navigate their use, their proper use and the compliance. Medicines information will play a larger role in the future. uh, And pharmacists and industry really need to collaborate here and help each other and the patient to find reliable sources of information and to understand the science and to understand why you need to comply and carry out your treatment in a specific way. We want to keep up with the pace of digitization. It's not easy because um, as an industry, uh, you know, we, we interact with patients and, and we want to work, for example, uh, on initiatives like the electronic patient information, including an electronic patient information and leaflet and moving towards a paperless environment. And we really count on, on working together with pharmacists to support this initiative, which will not only address the famous paper versus digital question, but also will hopefully ensure that together we can improve health literacy. That's a difficult world globally. And I'm I'm pretty sure that will be the case. I mean, pharmacists will continue to develop their professional skills to be able to contribute to patient counseling on adherence and safety interactions and efficacy of medicines, but also on bringing back packs and properly disposing of medicines. I think that citizens have become more environmentally conscious uh, and industry is doing a lot in the area of environmental sustainability, looking at the whole medicines life cycle. You know, we have our Echo Pharmaco Stewardship Program, which we're implementing since many years now. But the area that we've been collaborating most with pharmacists uh, is to ensure that appropriate disposal of medicines. And we have this medsdisposal.eu portal, which we are collaborating with the Association of Pharmacists at European level and the Pharmaceutical Students Association to make sure that all the information is there for pharmacists and the general public to know how to dispose of their medicines. So, you know, you play a crucial role in the success of treatment of patients and in accompanying patients and the products. Uh, so hopefully we can continue to work hand in hand to get the patients the best outcomes that uh, they can possibly have in a safe way for them, but also for the environment. Thank you, Natalie. And I, I can't concur because I went back into practice during the, the peak of the pandemic and now vaccinating and the pharmacies were open, weren't they? I mean, they were. Yeah, open. exactly. You know, they were open. Um, and, you know, people can walk off the street and ask for some advice. And I think your point about communication is really important and literacy. We live in a cosmopolitan world and it's actually quite surprising how many people can't read English or even their own language, actually. I saw a fascinating technology a couple of months ago where it's called Read It To Me, where they're able to actually 
read the label to the, the, that patient's language, literally little snapshots mm-hmm. so they, they can understand wow. what they were taking. And I think power of communication is very important. And I think pharmacists will continue to play that role as an advocate on the high street or what we used to call the scientist on the high street. Natalie, it's been wonderful talking to you today and hearing your insights, the great work that you're doing with FPR and the the great role that your members did in helping to fight the pandemic and keep doing great work at FPR. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. you know, and thank you, Suni, for having me and uh, success with your programme. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to the new RPS Pharmacy podcast out every other Friday. Don't forget to get involved and have your say using the hashtag RPS Pharmacy. See you in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm.